0: We're going to be in Joshua chapter nine, a lot of good things the Lord is going to reveal to us. Let's pray that he blessed our time in the word. God, your word is awesome. We believe together today that your word is absolute truth. Absolute truth. We believe that your word is inerrant, that it is right and without error, and all that it teaches and asserts. We believe that your word is living and active, and you alone, Jesus, have the words of life. Where else can we go? You have the words of life, and so we've come to you, the living word. We ask the Holy Spirit you'd speak to us through the Holy Word today, that you would enable us to understand, that you give us discernment, insight, wisdom, and knowledge, and that Holy Spirit, as you anoint me to teach, and we ask that you would, as you anoint me to teach the Holy Spirit, you be making application in the hearts of your precious ones. You be revealing things in the hearts. You you be pulling out that which needs to come forth. You be building in that which needs to be built in, Lord. You be fortifying what needs to be built up and tearing down what needs to go. You would just work in our hearts. And Lord, we just confess, confess that we're just weak, frail, fragile people. But you are a great and awesome God, and you are our God. And we want to be more like you. And so, Holy Spirit, come. Take us from glory to glory. Conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. We, we look in the mirror, and we look at our lives, and we say, wow, I want to be more like Jesus. And so work in our hearts to be more like Jesus. We ask now that you make us very wise to the schemes of the enemy, and that you would teach our hearts to cling to the Lord and to be strong in the strength of the lord and experience the victory we pray these things in jesus name amen amen Amen. Amen. well it's been a few weeks since we've been in joshua as i mentioned so just a little brief recap in joshua chapter 7 you'll remember that sin entered into the camp achan took some things he was not supposed to take and 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 this disabled israel so to speak this this made it impossible for Israel to get the victory over the enemy in Ai. And they went up against the enemy, and they came back down the hill with their tails between their legs. They got beat up upon. And the Lord revealed to them that there was sin in the camp. And so they dealt with the sin. They got right with the Lord, and they got the victory. There's a recipe for living, people. They dealt with the sin, got right with the Lord, and they got the victory. And they were so impressed. By the difference of doing things their way and doing things God's way, they were so impressed with the different outcome that at the end of that victory, they traveled north to the Valley of Shechem and there they just celebrated the Lord because of the victory they had given them. There they built an altar of praise to the Lord. And, and there they whitewashed these giant stones and they, write, they wrote the word of God on those giant stones. And they read the word of God in the valley of Shechem with part of Israel on this side of the valley and part of Israel on that side of the valley. And as it was read, all of Israel, hundreds of thousands would be saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. They were agreeing with, aligning themselves with the word of God. Because they discovered this poignant truth. That when they lived according to God's word, they experienced victory. When they strayed from God's word, they experienced defeat. And having experienced the victory of the Lord by the power of God and obedience to God's word, they celebrated there in the Valley of Shechem. Now they return to their headquarters in a place called Gilgal. And when they're camped out at Gilgal, they've got all the Canaanite nations before them. Seven different nations. I want you to uh see this map as we just get acquainted with where we are so they're camped out right here at gilgal here's the dead sea here's the sea of Galilee. here's the jordan river they're camped out at gilgal and you can see before them are the seven nations of canaan the hivites the girgashites the canaanites the amorites the jebusites the perizzites and the hittites they're all in front of them now the next place that Joshua would have gone to conquer would have been Gibeon, which is just over here, 20 miles to the west and just over this mountain range from where they're camped out at Gilgal. Remember the strategy is that they would move this way through the land of Canaan, effectively cutting the land of Canaan in half, north and south. After the central campaign, we'll see the southern campaign, and then the northern campaign in the settling of the land. But right now we find themselves, we find them in Gilgal Gaul with the nations of Canaan before them. And what happens at the outset of chapter 9 is that six of these seven nations of Canaan can form a, a, or form a confederacy against Israel. We see that in the first two verses. Verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland and on the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite heard of it, that they gathered themselves together with one accord to fight with Joshua and with Israel. So all these nations here, that the Lord is giving the land into their hands. They've heard of the great victories, of the miraculous things that God has done on Israel's behalf. And so they unite themselves against Israel. Israel's always been outnumbered. They're outnumbered by their enemies right now as we speak. And these enemies can form this confederacy, and they're preparing for all-out war against Israel. But then we find this little subset of the enemy. That's the inhabitants of the city of Gibeon. And they come up with a different plan. They don't necessarily join this confederation of nations and prepare themselves for war. They have an altogether different plan. We read about that starting in verse 3. It says, When the inhabitants of Gideon, or Gibeon, excuse me, heard that what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they acted craftily and set out envoys or messengers. Okay, so catch this. They're located just 20 miles from where Israel's camped out at Gilgal. They heard what Israel did to Jericho. The great victory and the walls coming down. They heard about the slaughter of Ai and how God delivered the enemy into their hands. And so now having heard that Israel's coming into the land and that those great cities have fallen, they're terrified. And so they come up with a deceptive plan to circumvent their sure defeat. We read in verse 4 that they acted craftily and sent out messengers. Now, we're going to see in a minute just what their crafty little scheme was. But apparently, by way of context, they heard that Israel had been commanded by Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7 not to make a covenant with any of the inhabitants of the land. They were to conquer the whole land, destroy the inhabitants. They weren't to make any treaties or covenants with the people of the land. Somehow, the Gibeonites knew this. And so the enemy, knowing that they were already defeated in effect, and that they would not be able to keep God's people from God's promises, the enemy devises a crafty and deceptive plan. Now, this is a perfect parallel to how the enemy works against the Christian. You see, if the enemy can't keep us from all that God has for us, he will certainly try to complicate things for us. If the enemy can't get us to hell, he will try to make us go through hell here on earth he will try to complicate things and draw us away from the simplicity of following Jesus Christ that's what the enemy is going to try to do right now for the Israelites and so we're warned about that in the New Testament for our own lives we read in 2nd Corinthians eleven three, 3 Paul writing says but I'm afraid lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness Your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see, it's a wonderful thing that the Christian faith is meant to be very simple. That we're just to be simply and purely, meaning wholly devoted to Jesus Christ. But what the enemy wants to come along and do is complicate that. He he wants to fetter up our hearts. He wants to encumber our lives with sin. He wants to complicate the situation. And he especially seeks to complicate things when he sees a Christian that is walking in victory. Hey, if you're not walking in victory, you're no threat to the enemy. He doesn't give you the time of day. He doesn't need to. You're doing all the work yourself. But if you're really walking in victory, if you're walking according to the Spirit and not carrying out the deeds of the flesh, if you're taking the land, so to speak, if you're getting the fullness, all that God has for you, then the enemy is concerned about you. Because now you are a threat to his kingdom. Huh. And so we have this quote from Merrill Unger in his book, What Demons Can Do to Saints. It says, Although the devil manifests his deception toward all mankind, he directs his most clever tricks and most wily deception against redeemed humanity, Christians. The more spiritual and victorious the believer, the more subtle and vehement are the satanic and demonic assaults against him. Did you catch that? The more spiritual and victorious the believer, the more subtle, sneaky, sneaky, and persistent are the satanic and demonic assaults against him. Now that's exactly what we see Joshua and the Israelites doing at the outset of chapter 9 is they are walking in victory. They are experiencing victory. They have been obeying the Lord and they're in intimate relationship with the Lord. And because of that, the enemy knows that they are no match face to face for Israel. And so they devise a clever disguise to complicate life for God's people. Now we're going to read through what their little plan was, and I want you to take note of these because they parallel very closely the way that our enemy, Satan, tries to come against Christians. Okay, here's what the Gibeonites did. Starting again in verse 4. They acted craftily and set out messengers and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet, and worn out clothes on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, and said to him and to the men of Israel, We've come from a very far country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, "Uh, perhaps you're living within our land. How then are we going to make a covenant with you? Because they knew according to Deuteronomy chapter 7, they weren't supposed to make any covenants with the inhabitants of the land. Verse 8, but they said to Joshua, no, we are your servants. Then Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and to Og the king of Bashan who was at Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions in your hand for your journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now then, make a covenant with us. This is our bread. It was warm when we took it from uh, our houses on the day that we left to come to you, but now look, it's dry and it's become crumbled. And these wineskins, which were filled new, look, they're old now. And these, our clothes and our sandals, are worn out because of the very long journey. Verse 14, so the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask For the counsel of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. Now, this is a literal, actual historical account before us. This is not allegory, this is not figurative. This is the actual strategy that the Gibeonites employed when coming against Joshua and the Israelites but it paints a very vivid picture for you and I Christians about the tactics that our enemy Satan employs when he's coming against those of us that are seeking to walk in victory. So let's see, let's outline the strategy here by Gibeon and see how it parallels with what the enemy would do to us. The first thing that they did is they came in disguise. Okay, you saw that in verses 4 and 5. They disguised themselves. They put on old clothes and made themselves old dirty and got old bread and old provisions. They disguised themselves. They made themselves appear, appear as something they were not. Now Satan does the same thing he's always seeking to disguise himself what does it say in second Corinthians 11 verses 14 and through through 15 it says even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness The enemy is deceptive. The enemy is sneaky. The enemy loves to disguise himself, to appear as something he is not, or his servants appearing as somebody they are not. He's got to do it against the victorious Christian, because the victorious Christian is familiar with the word of God. Wouldn't be walking in victory if you weren't. And so the victorious Christian has had his mind trained by the word of God and has a degree of wisdom. And Satan knows this, and Satan does not come up to the Christian who is following the Lord and say, hey, I'm Lucifer, and I want to destroy you. Come do this sin. This will wreck you from the inside out. That's not what he says to the victorious Christian. The victorious Christian loves Jesus and will do everything he can to resist that. Rather, he disguises himself as an angel of light. He'll come deceptively, sneakily, subtly. And those who are his servants, aware or unaware of their position, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. The second thing that the enemy did was the enemy wanted to cause God's people to disobey God's word. We see that in the last part of verse 6 where they said, we've come from a far country, now therefore make a covenant with us. They had already heard from the Lord in Deuteronomy 7, the Israelites had, that they weren't to make a covenant with any of the inhabitants of the land. Somehow the Gibeonites knew this. And so they wanted to, by trickery, cause God's people to disobey God's word. This has been the oldest tactic of the enemy all the way from the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Speaking to Satan, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Paraphrase. Did God really say that? god had indeed said that to eve the lord had said eve you could eat from any tree of the garden except for this one the tree of knowledge of good and evil you can't eat from this one all the other ones are fair game and the enemy comes along and wants to cast doubt on the word of god oh come on eve did god really say i mean is that what he really meant And then Eve responds in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, Well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. Now Eve does pretty good here, but not perfectly. The Lord did say not to eat from it. He didn't say not to touch it. Eve had sort of a, 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 a passing familiarity with the word of God like so many Christians today. Isn't there something in the Bible about... I remember something kind of, oh, I don't, I think you could never actually do this. You know what I mean? Listen, we're not to have a passing familiarity with the word of God. We're to have an exact, clear, experiential, roll up your sleeves, dig in knowledge, epignosis, a clear, exact knowledge of the Word of God. A working knowledge of the Word of God. Second 2 Timothy 2.15 Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman who need not be ashamed, but handles accurately the Word of Truth. Eve, she responded with the Word of God. That was mostly right, but she didn't really have a clear understanding of what God said. But it was enough for the moment. And so Satan now comes with his next little tactic... And the serpent said to the woman, you're not actually going to die. In other words, you don't take God's word literally, do you, Eve? Oh, you're such an old-fashioned fundamentalist. You mean you actually take the word of God literally? You're not really going to die, Eve. Satan's telling that same lie to a lot of people today, especially on our college campuses. You take the word of God literally, that's ridiculous. It's the same old lie from the very beginning. Don't buy into it. You're not actually going to die, Eve. And then in verse 5, Satan says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes are going to be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So first he questioned God's word. Did God really say that? And when she said, yeah, God pretty much said something like that, he goes, well, he didn't actually mean that. That's just your interpretation. Don't take it literally. And then what did he do? He got his foot in the door, so now he could just boldly contradict the word of God and cast dispersion on the character of God. Well, here's why. Because God doesn't want you to have any fun, Eve. God wants to keep you from good things, and God knows that if you eat of that tree, you're going to be awesome. You're going to be just like God, and your, guy, your eyes are going to be open. It's going to be good for you. Cast dispersion on the character and the person of God, causing Eve to think, yeah, yeah. Why can't I eat from that one tree? Eve, you're so silly. Every tree in the garden you could eat from but this one. Well, I want that one. Why is God withholding that one from me? It's called the Eve complex. God has given you so much. In his wisdom and love, he withholds this one thing. What do you want? The one thing. The grass is always greener. The forbidden fruit. The Eve complex. Satan wants to cause God's people to disobey God's word. That's just what the Gibeonites were seeking to do here with the Israelites. The third thing that we see the Gibeonites do is they spoke with flattery. Verse 8, they said, we're your servants. Oh, we're just humble servants of you. You guys are so great. So they spoke with flattery. Now, I looked up the word flattery in the Oxford American Dictionary. And to flatter means to lavish insincere praise and compliments upon someone, especially to further one's own interests. This is exactly what they were doing. Oh, you're awesome. We're nobody. We're just your servants seeking to further their own interests. The enemy has no problem appealing to your pride. The enemy has no problem playing with your vanity. The enemy's got no problem trying to puff you up and flatter you if that will serve his purposes for the moment. I I looked up, did a little word search on flattery in the Bible, and it was interesting what came up. What the scriptures say about flattery concerning the ungodly. It says in Psalm 12, they speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks great things. Concerning the enemies of God's people, Psalm 5, there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Concerning the adulterous woman, Proverbs 7, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Concerning false prophets and witchcraft, Ezekiel 12, God comes against it in Israel and says, for there will no longer be any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. Concerning divisive churchgoers and false teachers in the church, Romans 16, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Concerning those who deny Jesus' master, Jude, verse 16. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. The Bible is very clear that the enemy of God's people and the people who are seeking to come against God's people and and complicate life for them at the inspiration of the enemy, Satan, they often employ the tactic of flattery, key tactic of the enemy now god's true servants are never going to use flattery if you just keep your finger here and flip over to second thessalonians real quick actually first thessalonians excuse me In first thessalonians 2 paul is speaking about his ministry and that of sylvanus and timothy as true apostles of the lord and and see how contrary it is to those verses we just looked at in first thessalonians chapter 2 starting in verse 5 paul says about his ministry We never came with flattering speech. That was not one of our tactics, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. We didn't come asking you for money for ourselves. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from anybody else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having thus a fond affection for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exerting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. In order that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That is a description. Those are the characteristics of, that is what the ministry looks like of the true ministers of God. They don't employ flattery. They're not in it for self-gain. They're not in it to draw people unto themselves. They want to point people to Jesus. They want people to experience Jesus. And it is very important that we seek to discern between the true ministers of God and those who are disguising themselves as ministers of righteousness, as Satan comes as an angel of light. Because Jesus said about the last days, Matthew 24, that they would be characterized by deception. More than any other time in history, our time, if you read the Bible and you have a brain, you see we are in the last days. More than any other time in history, our time, is defined by deception according to the words of our Lord. And so we have to seek to be very wise and to look and to watch and to discern between those who come in disguise, who would seek to cause us to disobey the word of God, who employ flattery as a tactic. Now, going back to Joshua 9, the next thing that the enemy did was they told lies. In verse 9, we are your servants who have come from a very far country. There was their lie. We are your servants was their flattery. We've come from a very far country was their lie. They lied to further their purpose, to complicate life for Israel. Jesus said this speaking to the devil in John 8, 44. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. One of the primary tactics of our enemy, Satan, is the same same tactic employed by the Gibeonites, that of lying. In fact, he is the father of lies, and he has always been a liar. And what the church today has got to do is safeguard itself against lies. The Bible says in the New Testament that in the last days, people will turn away from the faith, paying attention to doctrines of demons. And so Christian, you must safeguard yourself against deception and lies. And the best way to safeguard yourself is to have a working knowledge of the truth. If you immerse yourself in the truth, you're not going to fall for the lie it's like the way that our government trains its agents to spot counterfeit bills i've been told that what they do is they study the hundred dollar bill and all the minutia thereof the fibers of it and the weave of it and what it looks like when it's backlit and all the tiny hidden details they study every detail and the minutia of the real thing what they don't get to see in their training are the counterfeit bills Why? The government's tactic is that their agents would so know the real thing that when they saw the false thing, they would immediately spot it. There would be no question in their mind. They're so familiar with the truth that they easily discern the lie. Christian, you have got to be that person in these last days. You have got to be so familiar with the Word of God, with the truth of God, that you can easily detect the lie. The best lie detector I know is hiding the Word of God in your heart. You have got to hide the Word of God in your heart. It is the lie detector. And Jesus said we are living in a day and an age that is characterized by deception. And the reason that the enemy deceives is to bring destruction. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that more abundantly. Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. Listen to me, please. If you are going to commit yourself to anything in this lifetime, commit yourself to the Word of God. If you're going to commit yourself to anything in this lifetime, commit yourself to the Word of God. Rearrange your schedule that you've got time to read it every day reprioritize your life that you make time to read the Word of God every day it is the ultimate lie detector it will keep you from deception and from falling and from failure it will enable you to walk in victory Israel knew that when they walked according to the word they experienced the victory of God when they walked according to their own wisdom they failed every time without exception If you're going to do anything in this lifetime, commit yourself to the Word of God. Some of you started so well in January when we started reading the Bible together as a church, the the one-year Bible. And you know, now we're six months into it. We're just about halfway through the Bible. And many of you, you've fallen off the wagon. You know what I mean? Hey pick it up again don't try to make up the ground that you lost you'll just get discouraged just pick it up in today's reading get the flyer there's more of them at the table by the door and start to read the word of god that's all you got to do is read it and the holy spirit will knit it into your heart and it's going to be the overflow of your life and when the enemy comes seeking your destruction you will be able to stand firm and get the victory because of the word of god Now, what's very interesting is the enemy's next tactic. First, they told a lie, and immediately after that, they tell the truth. They say in the second part of of verse 9, We've come because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, and to Og, so on and so forth now they just begin to speak the truth. Hey, your God is an awesome God. And your God has given you the victory. And we've heard about him. Isn't that interesting? They came in in disguise. They came to cause God's people to disobey God's word. They employed flattery. They employed lying. And now they begin to tell the truth. Take note of this very carefully. Satan has no problem telling the truth when it serves his purposes. No problem telling the truth when it serves his purposes. Satan used scripture when he was tempting Jesus. He used the truth of scripture. Satan knows scripture. He knows the truth of it. He's got no problem employing it at an opportune moment that he might twist it in your life later on and bring you to destruction. He'll do whatever he can. He employs flattery. He employs lies. And here he just simply tells the truth. And you know, sometimes the enemy that does that to us, doesn't he? The enemy goes, you are, you are such a sinner. And he ain't lying. He's telling the truth. This is where Joshua got in trouble. Instead of just responding with the word of God when they came and said, make a covenant. Hey, sorry, we don't know where you're from. And Deuteronomy 7 says, make no covenant. I'm done with you. Instead of just responding with the word of God, Joshua engaged them in conversation. And the enemy outdid him. The enemy of our soul, Satan, is very wise. Do not engage him in conversation. You declare what's what and who's who. You lay out the truth of the word of God and you walk away. Don't try to wrangle words with the enemy. Don't engage him in conversation. He comes to you with the truth that you're a dirty, rotten sinner. You come against him with the truth of the blood of Jesus Christ. You proclaim what's what and who's who. You get the victory and walk away in Jesus' name. Amen? The enemy will employ whatever tactics he has at his disposal. The final thing that the enemy did was they showed false signs. Verses 12 and 13, Joshua 9. It says this is our bread and it was warm when we took it from our homes on the day that we left to come to see you but look now it's dry and it's become crumbled and these wineskins which were filled were brand new and now look they're torn and these our clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey they present false evidence they show false signs to God's people and God's people were deceived by the false signs now, what did Jesus say in Matthew twenty-four, twenty-four? He said about the last days, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise. And what will they do? They will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Jesus said in the last days that one of the tactics of the enemy and his minions would be lying signs and wonders. Don't think that the enemy is not able to perform signs and wonders. He certainly is. Read the book of Revelation. You'll see a whole lot of them. Read the book of Genesis. You'll see a whole lot of them. Exodus. Remember when Moses went before Pharaoh and threw down his staff and it became a serpent? That was the power of God. But what were Pharaoh's magicians able to do by the power of Satan? The same thing. You see, Satan is a great counterfeiter. He's the mimicker. And anytime God does something great, Satan is there to present a counterfeit. And in the last days, Satan will be displaying lying signs and wonders. Concerning the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2 9, it says, The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all deception. There's a lot of people today who are claiming a lot of signs and wonders and powerful stuff and this and that. Listen, our God is able to do signs and wonders. And the Bible says not that God's people will follow after signs and wonders, but rather God's people, loving God in spirit and in truth, will have signs and wonders follow them. There's a lot of people today just playing signs and wonders and claiming to be uh, the true ministers of God. But here's what you need to do because it's deceptive. Okay, it's not real clear cut. It's tricky. The enemy is very deceptive in these last days. So what you've got to do then is examine those things in light of the word of God, period. Examine those things in the light of word of God. If it matches up with the word of God, cool. If it doesn't, not cool. Test the spirits John the Apostle said not every spirit is from God and the enemy is deceptive It won't always be easy to tell and the better you know the word of God the less susceptible you are to deception If you don't know the word of God you are a buffoon you will fall to it every time You've got to know the word of God and when you see claims when you see signs compare it to the word of God People will say, well, I know it's not in the Word of God. It's it's just a little bit beyond the Word of God. It's just, you know, God's doing a new thing. Yes, it's not in the Word. Okay, hey, listen, you know what? I'm stopping at the Word. I'm sorry. I want to see signs and wonders, for sure. I want to see God do everything that he wants to do. But isn't there enough in the book without us looking for more? I mean, didn't he raise people from the dead? Didn't he part the Red Sea? Didn't he make the lame to walk and the blind to see? What, you need more? More? That's enough for me. I haven't even seen an infinitesimal tiny amount of what's in the Word of God without going beyond the Word of God. I'm sorry, I'm not going there. I'm sticking with the Word. I'm going to test all things because I live in a day and age that is characterized by deception and I love Jesus too much and I care for my family and my community too much to be deceived by that old liar and serpent and dragon Satan. I want to stand firm in the Word of God and the truth of God. And so, people, we've got to commit ourselves to knowing it. Isn't it amazing how closely the tactics of the Gibeonites against Israel parallel the tactics that Satan uses against Christians? It's amazing to me. It's a great exposing of the schemes of the enemy this morning. But I want us to remember this Joshua did not have to be deceived. He did not have to be deceived. The only reason that they were deceived is given to us in verse 14. So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord. There it is. If they had just asked the Lord, Lord, are they lying? Lord, tell me. Isn't the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth doesn't he want to lead the sons of God into truth if they had just Asked the Lord so often we get in trouble because we just don't ask the Lord Lord Is this the right way to go? Is this the right guy for me the right girl for me? Is this the right investment? Is this the right whatever it is? They just didn't ask the Lord and so they fell to deception Where it says there that they did not ask the counsel of the Lord that word counsel in the original Hebrew is literally mouth Here's the mouth of the Lord right here, the word of God. They did not consult the word of God. If they had just sought wisdom from the word, they never would have fallen to deception and they would have maintained that simplicity of devotion to Christ and not been led astray. We have the word of God. Beyond that, we have a counselor. Remember the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I go, I will send the helper, the counselor, the comforter. We have the third person of the Trinity. He is in us. He's come upon us, and he comes alongside of us to counsel us in the moment of need. We have the word of God, the mouth of God, and the spirit of God, the counselor of God. There's no reason that we should fall to deception. THERE'S NO REASON THAT WE SHOULD FALL TO THE SCHEMES OF THE ENEMY. WE HAVE EVERY TOOL NECESSARY TO STAND FIRM AND EXPERIENCE THE VICTORY. WE NEED TO SEEK THE PERSON OF THE HOLY SPIRIT. THE HOLY SPIRIT IS THE SPIRIT OF TRUTH, BUT THE DEVIL IS THE SPIRIT OF ERROR AND THE FATHER OF LIES. THE HOLY SPIRIT IS A LIFE-GIVING SPIRIT, BUT THE DEVIL WAS A MURDERER FROM THE BEGINNING. THE HOLY SPIRIT IS THE SPIRIT OF HOLINESS. THE DEVIL IS THE AUTHOR OF EVIL. The Holy Spirit is likened to a harmless dove, the devil is likened to a subtle serpent. The Holy Spirit is our helper, the devil is our adversary. The Holy Spirit is our advocate, the devil is a slanderer. The Holy Spirit gives men utterance, the devil makes men dumb. The devil is a strong man armed, but the Holy Spirit is someone stronger than he. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Joshua had no reason to fall to this deception. If he had just inquired of the mouth of God, if he had sought the counselor, the spirit of God, he wouldn't have been deceived. But he blows it, and in verse 15, it says, Joshua made peace with them and a covenant with them and let them live. So he blows it. He was tricked into disobeying God's word. You say, well, wait a minute. He disobeyed Deuteronomy 7 where it said that they weren't to make a covenant with anybody in the land, and they were to uh, get rid of all the inhabitants of the land. Yeah, he disobeyed that, but he was tricked into disobeying. He didn't even know that he was disobeying it. What's your point? There's no point in that. That's exactly what Satan wants to do, is to deceive us that we disobey. For the Christian walking in victory, he doesn't come along and say, hey, you want to disobey God's word and get in a whole mess? He doesn't say that to the Christian walking in victory because that Christian says, well, no, I love Jesus, and I want to obey him. He comes with deception. The end result is the same. It doesn't matter if you knew you were disobeying or not. The end result is the same. He tricked God's people into disobeying God's word. Joshua blows it, but what he does next is very, very important. Look. What Joshua does next is redeeming in quality. What he does next is the right thing. And when God's people do the right thing, it invites God's redemptive work into the situation. You got a messy situation, start to do the right thing. It invites God into the situation. Look what he does, starting in verse 16. And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors and that they were living within their land. Oy vey, we blew it. We got tricked, Joshua says. Verse 17, then the sons of Israel set out and came to their cities on the third day. They're going to confront them. Now their cities were Gibeon and that place and that place and that place. Verse 18, and the sons of Israel did not strike them because the leaders of the congregation, look, had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole congregation grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the whole congregation, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And so now we cannot touch them. This we will do to them. Even we will let them live, lest wrath be upon us for the oath which we swore to them. So what Joshua chooses to do, follow this, what Joshua chooses to do is to keep his oath that he made to them. Even though it was made in a context of deception, even though that was a mistake, he chooses to keep his oath. Why? Well, it was believed at the time that oaths that were made by individuals were binding upon those individuals. And if they were to break that oath, it would mean divine retribution. And culturally speaking, if an oath was not kept and the invoke deity's name, uh, they use a deity's name to, to invoke that oath, and they broke that oath, it was saying that that deity's name was worthless and powerless. They made that oath in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Culturally speaking, if they were to break that oath, it was effectively saying, well, our God and his name are of no big deal, of no power and no meaning. All that Joshua knew to do, according to everything that he knew, all that he knew that said was right, was to keep his oath to these people. And apparently, that was the right thing. Apparently, God did honor the oath that they made in the name of the Lord. Because later on, in the book of 2 Samuel, Saul, King Saul, kills a bunch of the Gibeonites. And because of that, God brings famine on the land. And in 2 Samuel 21, verse 1, David says, why is there famine on our land right now? And God says, because Saul killed the Gibeonites and my boy Joshua made a promise to them and Saul just broke that oath and there is divine retribution. Wow. Wow. Joshua did what he knew to be the right thing at that moment and God honored it. Now, obviously, that same thing, might, that same exact instance might not apply to every situation in our lives. But I, I think this whole truth is true. Two wrongs do not make a right. Two wrongs do not make a right. Too often, people have compounded their errors by reflexively making decisions which took them to even lower depths. You know, they they, they did the wrong thing and they made a mess and oh gosh, how do I clean this mess up? Well, I'll just sweep this under the rug here and I'll just fudge the numbers there and I'll just hide this back here and look, it's clean. And it just makes a bigger mess. Joshua knew that the best thing that he could do on the heels of failure was to do the right thing. When we do that, it invites God into the situation. And when God comes in, God works redemption. If you continue to do the wrong thing and try to manipulate it in your own wisdom, it just allows the enemy to work in it. He invited God in, and God redeems the whole thing beautifully. And we end with the last few verses. Verse 21. Look at this redemption. And the leaders of Israel said said to them, Let them live. So they became hewers of wood and drawers of water for the whole congregation, just as a leader spoke to them. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why did you deceive us, saying you were from a very far country when you were living within our land? I love how he claims the land. God did give them the land. It's still their land, by the way. Now, therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you, therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you. And that's why we've done this thing. And now behold, we're in your hands, Joshua. Do as seems good and right in your sight to do to us. And he did, and thus he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. That's a redemptive story. You say, wait a minute, what's so redemptive about that? Well, look what Joshua did. He effectively placed them right in the middle of the worship life of Israel. He made them the people that were responsible for chopping and bringing the wood for the altar of burnt sacrifice and for drawing and bringing the water that was used in the worship life of Israel. He places them right in the middle of the worship life, the religious life of Israel. They were idolaters. They followed after false gods, demonic impersonations. And look at God's redemption now. God leads Joshua to bring them right into the middle of the worship life of Israel. And what we find is this. Scripture and history are vacant from any evidence that the Gibeonites ever troubled Israel. They never troubled Israel from that time again. They never messed with them. They never sought to bring them into idol worship. In fact... Evidence suggests in the book of Ezra that they turned from worshiping idols and they became followers of the God of Israel That's redeeming They were slated for destruction and What they meant for evil God worked for good and now they're brought into the life of Israel there it's revealed to them the one true God 400 years later David would store the tabernacle at Gibeon We know from Scripture that at least one of David's mighty men was a Gibeonite. And when Nehemiah came back from captivity to rebuild Yerushalayim, who do we find rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem with the Israelites? The Gibeonites. Rebuilding the city of God with the people of God. They became part of God's blessing. And they became a blessing to God's people. And only God could take what man meant for evil and work it for good. That's redemption that is exactly what god did and the open door for that was when joshua chose to do the right thing on the heels of failure that invites the lord in and the lord worked it for good and the lord wants to do the same thing in our lives amen lord thank you for how instructive your word is holy spirit i ask that you would please now come and make application of your word in our lives Lord that you would further expose the schemes of the enemy in our lives any way that he's come disguised any deception that he's working any trickiness to trip us us up in our obedience any way that he's condemning us or flattering us any lies or any half-truth reveal it Lord we want to follow hard after you we want to cling to you with everything that is within us and Lord, we want you to be redemptive in our messes. We want you to come in and take our ashes and give us beauty. We want you to take our mantle of fainting and give us a mantle of praise. We want to bring to you our broken things and watch you fix them and make them beautiful. And so we invite you in, Holy Spirit. Please instruct us in the right thing to do for our lives today. Just where we are at right now, what is our next step for us as individuals and as a church? Holy Spirit, lead us. Speak to us. Open our ears to hear the voice of the living God. We want to obey. We want to follow. We want to stand firm in your truth. If you guys need help today, the Holy Spirit is here. Call upon him. And the prayer team is here. Let's do some business with God.